Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy that you get to hear part two of my conversation with Mark Potok. It has been a pleasure having him on the show. He does incredible work, and he's a really good person. And it was so nice to be able to speak with him and learn from him. Mark Potok, for 20 years, helped lead the Southern Poverty Law Center's premier operation monitoring the extreme right in the United States. He served as the director of their intelligence project and later a senior fellow and editor-in-chief of their award-winning intelligence report, Investigative Magazine. He is an expert in the Klan, neo-Nazism, the militia movement, Holocaust deniers, and other aspects of the radical right. He is also a well-known civil rights champion and was at the Southern Poverty Law Center until 2017. He has testified before Senate, the Helsinki Commission, the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights, and other important venues. He has been an award-winning reporter, many newspapers and magazines, and has been quoted all over, and radio and television. In 1996, his editors nominated him for a Pulitzer Prize for a series of stories on racism in Texas public housing. Mark Potok has been the recipient of numerous journalism and other awards, including the 2010 First Place Green Eyeshade Award for Best Investigative Magazine Article from the Society of Professional Journalists. Mark, in 2018, joined the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right as a senior fellow. He has so much information to share, so much information that I think you need to know. Here's part two of my conversation with Mark now. I know that, you know, this kind of work, when you care about what's happening in the world to this degree and see it in so many different areas, you want to be able to speak in front of different groups of people to try to educate them, to try to, I guess, shift perception, but more really open people's eyes. And I heard that you had testified in front of the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights. And I'm curious to hear you talk about that. And what was that about? I mean, it was interesting. I went to Geneva to do it and I had to you know, present a paper and then give a speech and so on. Uh, you know, essentially what they were interested in, this is quite a while ago, 25 years ago or so, was the internet. So what they wanted to know was, is the internet going to destroy the world? You know, and I was there to say, no, it's not going to destroy the world. But yes, it's true that the internet is helping these groups to grow. It's helping them to spread propaganda theories. And in fact, it's turned out to be relatively useful for actually recruiting uh, young people into the movement. So, you know, does an appearance like that change much? I doubt it very much. Cumulatively, does it change things when I and, you know, 30 or 40 or 100 other people testify over the years or, or make statements? Perhaps it does. But in any case, it was a part of an early effort to understand the role of the internet. This, of course, is before social media in helping the radical right to expand its reach. Right. It is a both and situation, of course. There are a lot of cults that actually just do their recruiting online. In the 90s, 
large majority of uh, sociologists and criminologists and so on believed that it essentially wasn't possible to recruit people or at least to recruit people to the point that they were willing to carry out acts of terrorist violence via computer screen, right? So most of the field back then thought, no, that's got to happen in face-to-face recruiting. You've got to build up a personal relationship uh, with somebody, and that's what really brings you to the point of being willing to uh, act out with criminal violence. And that turned out to be very wrong. It was, I think, first Al-Qaeda and later ISIS that showed clearly that you could recruit people to do incredible things, blow themselves up along with a hundred other people, you know, in a market someplace, people completely innocent of whatever ills they were being accused of. I would say that it became most obvious in the movement, in the radical right in the United States, with the Charleston massacre carried out by Dylan Roof. Because Dylan Roof, a guy who murdered nine black churchgoers, saying, I have to do this. You're taking over our country and you're raping our women, right? Those were his last words before he began shooting or something very close to that. Well, you know, the interesting thing about Dylan Roof is that Roof never interacted with anybody in the white supremacist world. Uh, He was a, a kid who was basically off to himself. He read some pages on the internet, but principally, he read one page uh, from a white supremacist group called the Council of Conservative Citizens, which is basically at this point, or at that point, was just a huge list of crimes, black on white crimes, which were supposed to show that black people are, you know, there's a plan, right? They're, They're all out there murdering white people and raping white women and so on. In any case, that's what motivated Dylan Roof. Uh, He certainly knew about white supremacist groups, but even online, he had virtually no interactions with anybody. So it was a remarkable thing. Uh, You know, talk about self-radicalized, right? This is a guy who first uh, heard about the Trayvon Martin case, uh, decided that Trayvon Martin was wrong. He probably should have been killed. And then in the course of reading about that, wound up at this Council of Conservative Citizens page and went, oh, my God, right? White people are under attack by them the African-Americans, all of them. Therefore, I need to start killing them, including kindly old ladies in a Bible study uh, in church. Right. So while I agree that having the internet, having access to it has certainly helped a lot of people be able to get information, be able to get will access the site for the Center for Analysis or Southern Poverty Law Center, et cetera, et cetera. Get curriculum materials. Actually, I know a lot of teachers are downloading curriculum materials to teach tolerance and other other words for it, but basically educating people about what's out there and also how to have conversations and how to also have a sense of who you are, which is something that I like to teach when I'm teaching about cults, sort of having a sense of self so that if you're not sure who you are, there are plenty of people out there who will be happy to tell you and define you based on what serves them. And so I think that uh, what is also true is that, yes, many people get recruited into cults, into certain kinds of thinking, QAnon and the like. Uh, there are, I mean, people like Stephen Molyneux, who, you know, um, people will leave their families in the, in the middle of the night to go meet up with other groups of his followers, having never met him and never met uh, the followers yet. What I find happens is that uh, that there is a way that on people's computers in the darkness of their room, in the loneliness sometimes of their lives, they feel like they're being visited by a friend. 
and it pierces that isolation. And there's also kind of an intimacy about that and a safety because you don't even have to show yourself, especially if you're feeling insecure about yourself in some way, you don't have to show yourself. You can be loved in a way that you think is unconditional. Well, I mean, I think that we're really getting to the heart of what I think is an important part of this discussion, which is how how is it that people are kind of sucked into this world or how do they go into this world? And I think that that's absolutely true. And I don't at all mean to overstate the importance of the Internet. I think it's very often overstated and we can go back to that. But let me say, for instance, there's been important scholarly work done on why women join extremist groups. Uh, by a scholar, Kathleen Blee. And Kathleen, you know, made some very important findings, the principal one of which was the fact, the fact that most women who join extremist groups in America do not join for reasons of ideology. And they're really joining to kind of constitute or reconstitute the family, right? To make a community around them that they don't have. And these are very often, as you're suggesting, people who feel vulnerable, maybe because they're young, maybe because they had a rough upbringing, maybe because there was a family disruption early on, or maybe it's because they have a quote unquote secret. Uh, I think of a woman I knew who uh, got into this world because she had a very strict uh, a father, not a very nice guy, who said something to her once like, you know, you can do anything you want in life, go out with anyone you want, honey, but never come back here with a black man or a white woman. Well, you know, it turned out Angie King, my friend, was lesbian. You know, she was 16 or so when this happened. She didn't really know she was, but she was, you know, having these feelings. And so anyway, that's how she got into that world, because it created, she could, you know, and all you have to do is kind of say a few of the right things like, yeah, the Jews are bad uh, and so on. And you're in a world that can feel very complete. A lot of recruiting was done in the 90s via the racist music world, which involved concerts. And, and it wasn't only CDs at all, right? It was concerts and clubs and dance halls. Um, and, you know, a kid entering that world finds not only you know, a bunch of nasty thugs sitting around talking about, you know, beating up Jews or beating up black people in the streets. It's it's a club, right? And it's an exclusive club. And it's a club that not only is friendly to you and puts their arms around you, but it's a club that gives you secret knowledge. And you have a kind of secret language you speak among yourselves. And then you've got your music and you've got drugs. And for the boys, there are girls. And the girl, for the girls, there are boys, right? So it's a very... It's, you know, I remember early on in my journalistic career, uh, I wrote a couple few stories about girl gangs. These were Hispanic girl gangs. And, you know, talking to the experts back then, very much the same thing, right? It wasn't so much they wanted to go beat up people or, or burglarize houses or carry out home invasions or get into shootouts in the street. Uh, it's that they were reconstituting the family, right? They were coming from families with some, you know, typically the father had gone off to prison or had abandoned the family, things like that, right? Or maybe traumatic illness, car crash, whatever it may have been, but disruptive events uh, or just parents who are terrible at being parents, right? And or who hate each other. But, you know, these are people, these are young kids, very typically uh, trying to make a family of their own that works. So, you know, and I, another thing to say about people who join this movement that maybe is counterintuitive is, you know, you think, well, what kind of a kid could go and beat up every Latino he sees on the street or even shoot Latinos and so on? I'm thinking of a particular bunch of kids who did this. 
And, you know, the surprising thing, the really surprising thing about many hate criminals, people who carry out these criminal violent attacks, are people who don't think of themselves as scum, right, as, as you know, street fighting thugs, right? They think of themselves as heroes. They are the young heroes of their community. They are doing what their parents kind of talk about and insinuate at the dinner table, but are afraid to do. So these are the brave young warriors. Somebody's got to go out there and stand up for the white race or for straight men or you know whatever it may be. Typically, it is the white race. Uh, and I'm going to do it. And I'm doing it for the best of motives. And, you know, even a guy like Timothy McVeigh, I covered the Oklahoma City bombing, the trial of McVeigh uh, and so on and got to know, you know, quite a bit about McVeigh. You know, McVeigh was not a street thug, very bright guy. He pulled off an incredible thing in 10 months for $5,000. He built a bomb and managed to carry out the murder of 168 people. And he certainly, you know, I mean, he's he's pretty awful, right? I mean, we talked about afterwards, well, they're just collateral damage. I don't want to hear all the whining from the grandparents and so on. But he absolutely thought of himself as a warrior. He had a whole justification in his head, right? Uh, if the United States is a country that's capable of carrying out the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombings, killing hundreds of thousands of people, utterly innocent, not who are civilians, men, women, and children, well, then where do we get off whining about the murder of 168 people in Oklahoma City? So I just think those are important things to understand about some of these people. And, you know, all the groups uh, on the radical right are not cultic. Uh, I would I would not use cult to describe the majority of them. There are certainly groups that are cultic that really revolve around the leader, around keeping outside information away and so on. Um, and, you know, it's surprising how <laughs> it seems to me that most cults led by a man wind up, you come to a moment when the man decides he gets all the women. And that has happened in quite a number of the white supremacist cults uh, as well. Uh, thinking, for instance, of a group in the 80s called the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. Very hard line group uh, in Northwest Arkansas. They had a compound. Uh, and sure enough, uh, a day comes when the leader, James Ellison, he called himself King James of the Ozarks, tells all the men in the groups that, you know, they can't have relations with their wives anymore. It's only him. And this, of course, is precisely what Koresh did, the same thing. We had a revelation from God. Guess what? All the women and girls are for me. So anyway, uh, the main point really is, is that an awful lot of these groups and individuals aren't cultists and are, and you know, let me say one other thing, which is a bit of an extended thought, but you know, I think it's a real mistake to start. And, and I see this being said very often by all kinds of people who study these groups or just observe them. The idea that they are the product or that the movement as a whole, the radical right as a whole, is the product of essentially trivial things like the internet, right? Algorithms on Facebook, that's what's making all these white supremacists. Or as you will hear on Fox News and you know the Drudge Report and that whole world of right-wing media, you know, they smoked too much marijuana when they were kids. They watched too many violent movies. If only we could get a girlfriend for every guy in this movement, it would go away. Or they're all mentally ill. Uh, on and on and on. And these are things you hear said by, you know, grown-up politicians and people on television all the time. And in my opinion, they're ridiculous. And I think the internet has been important and social media has some very specific aspects to it that help uh, these groups and individuals. But 
what I'm trying to get to is the idea that really, look, this is a global phenomenon. I mean, at least across the Western Hemisphere, we're seeing these right-wing populist regimes, nationalist regimes and politicians all over, right? Trump, of course, in this country, but, you know, Hungary, Poland, Belgium, India, you know, with Modi, this extreme religious nationalist, many countries in Latin America. So, you know, all across Europe, I mean, even countries like the UK and, and uh, Greece, my God, I grew up partly in Greece. It's the most wonderful country. And now it's got a serious Nazi movement. Well, you know, this isn't all because the kids watch too many violent movies or they couldn't get a girlfriend soon enough. Something else is going on. And what I would argue is what's going on is a tremendous backlash against huge socioeconomic changes in the world. And basically, these are changes related to globalization. So in the case of the United States and quite a few other countries, we are seeing a radical change in the demography of our country and our population. Our country was 90% white from the colonial period right up until the early 1960s. It is now 62% white. And the Census Bureau says that by about in the next 20, 25 years, we, whites will be less than 50% of the population. In other words, white people in America will be one more minority among many. So it doesn't bother me, but th there are tens of millions of white people who feel like, oh my God, right? Uh, the others are taking over our country and they're coming for us and the country our forefathers built and so on is being stolen from us. And this is not right, but it's deeply felt, right? At the same time, financial aspects of globalization, right? The, the destruction of the steel industry, of the auto fabrication industry, of the textile industry, right? There are big sectors of our population, uh, and in particular, big sectors of the white working class in America who are angry, who feel somewhat with some justification that they're being left behind. They're the people the newspapers never write about, and they are the people, perhaps it's worth pointing out, they're the same people. These are Trump voters, but they are also United Kingdom voters who voted for Brexit. It's the same people. The Brexit voters lived in the North Counties uh, of England. These are the deindustrializing, the old steel areas and coal, coal miners and so on, industries that are collapsing or have gone abroad. And then finally, these giant cultural changes. And the most obvious one, uh, just for an example, is same-sex marriage, right? I mean, who 20 years ago thought in the United States same-sex marriage would be legal in 50 states? And here we are. Um, and in the same way, you know, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, you know, Me Too, all of these things. So there are many people who are terribly, terribly frightened by this, who feel that something's being taken from them. And of course, in a sense, something is, right? White privilege is certainly not gone, but it's under attack. And so this is a reaction to that. And you see it again and again. It doesn't have to be white people, right? I mean, Modi's India, it's like we, the Hindus, are the good people, right? And the Muslims, they're a little darker than us, and they got crazy religious beliefs, and we really don't like them. We're going to make life as miserable for them as we can. So I just think that's an important thing to understand about what's driving this movement. I think it's very important to understand. It's reminding me of a conversation I had yesterday. And so this is not a term that I can take credit for. It's someone I was talking to, but I haven't yet gotten permission to say his name, so I won't say it. But he's a light-skinned uh, Latino, and he talks not only about white privilege, but light privilege. And that there is something about sort of looking like the, the people who are the, the privileged 
ones uh, that uh, helps you pass. And then you, you have your own issues of feeling like sort of a traitor to your own community. And, you know, why are you being treated differently? But also that you can be a spokesperson in that way and people might listen to you more, which also has its own internal conflicts. But yes, I think, you know, when you say that, you know, uh, white privilege is under attack, my instinctive response is good. <laughs> I just, I can't help it. Yes, it shouldn't have ever been. But yes, I know for a lot of people, it does make them feel very much afraid. I know there have been some studies, and this is not to say that it's all true about all people, because you know we can't think that way, and that's not sophisticated thinking in general, but that's also where people get into trouble, but that people who are more conservative in their political thinking typically also rate higher on a scale of anxiety. And binary thinking too, right? And binary thinking. Right. I think they're also intertwined, right? That things have to somehow make sense through the gray area can be anxiety producing for people who have anxiety. I need to know what is and I need to know it'll remain the same and then I can breathe. And but that's not the way the world works. And being able to be flexible, being able to know that there is a fluidity, political fluidity, political well, which I think is political health, sexual fluidity. I mean, you know, human beings are human beings. I think there should always be fluidity. But yes, people hold on to what they know, whether it's the, the best thing or not. But just because it's familiar, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. But also, especially if you think it is the best and also if it works for you, because then if something's going to change and it no longer is going to work for you, then suddenly what's going to happen to your life? And it more anxious way of approaching that would be now it'll be bad and now it'll be under attack. A less anxious approach is, well, let's see what happens. You know, it still be, might still be fine. And so I think we're up against a lot of anxiety. And I think that's why, you know, our political climate of the last many years was a fear mongering climate because of the need to stoke this anxiety. I think that's right. And, you know, I mean, all the studies looking at why Trump was elected basically come down to the same idea, right? That my identity is under attack. And that's really what it's about. It turned out not to be poor people, not to be rich people. Uh, and that actually uh, is something that studies has sh have shown to be true of the radical right in general. I remember, you know, during the first wave of the militia movement in the 1990s, people thought, well, these are all sort of struggling you know, losers from Idaho and Washington State who somehow can't find a place to be in the economy and, you know, are barely scraping by and their, you know, beard reaches the floor and they live in some terrible cabin in the middle of nowhere, you know, with plastic for windows. And that turned out not to be true whatsoever, that in fact, you know, lawyers and doctors were represented in the militia world as well with just the same kinds of, you know, pardon me, batshit crazy mm. ideas. Um <laughs> It wasn't a class thing, turned out. It was a thing about my identity as an American. And, you know, factoring into this, I think strongly, is the idea that there has been for many decades a lot, lot big hunk of the American sort of experiment. People really have felt that their kids are going to do better than them and their kids of their kids will do better than the kids. And that it was a sort of a march forward. And that, that I think, uh, kind of reaffirms or it kind of plugs into an affirmation of science too, right? Because we're becoming a more scientific society. We knew how things, we could put a guy on the moon, you know, and do all of these things. We could cure cancer, right? I mean, things were getting better. We were living longer and so on. And it's not true, at least anymore, at least for a, a pretty sizable hunk of population. Uh, things look clear, of course. I mean, you know, 
sometimes talking to groups, I would point out, you know, think of like someone the age of my father back then who grew up in the in the 30s, really. But in any case, or more recently than that, you know, but people read right up into the 50s and 60s and perhaps even later, if you got a high school degree, you weren't didn't weren't some kind of huge screw up in high school. You could leave you, a young white man, uh, get a job in a factory that paid very good wages. There were strong unions back then. And you could support a family. You could support a wife and a couple of kids and nobody else would have to work. And you could live pretty well. And by God, you know, after a time, you could buy a house and have a car, maybe a second car. And it's a very different world now. If you don't have a high school degree now, God help you right in the job market. And really, if you don't have a college degree, you're, you're not going to do well for sure. So it's just a different place than it was. The world is a lot more difficult for a lot of people. And in particular, this sort of core audience we're talking about, white people. Right. It is. Okay. So moving into that, I guess, just as we wrap up, I think it's important when you look at the world now, I think of having kids myself and the mother of kids who are all over the place, trans, gay, straight, well, you know, just like a, a kind of a cornucopia of whatever they are and are were meant to be. There is also this sense for some of them where they are propelled to want to make a difference and others sort of have this burden, almost the, I mean, I don't usually swear on the show, but they'll say like, they get the buckets, like, global warming, there's too much, too much going on. You know, thanks grownups for leaving this world in this way to us. And now there's, we have to dig ourselves out of holes just to get even to where you are beyond being able to surpass. I think for the work that you do, I'm sure part of what is important when you're putting together information is seeing if not only can you be an educator, but a catalyst, I think. What can people do now if they're feeling overwhelmed? Where can they find their way in? Are there movements of change that would be good for people to hear about? Because when people hear a talk like this, you can, of course, there's so much to talk about that's wrong. And that's incredibly important to enumerate. And the going back to the predicate part. Now, what can people do about it? Well, let me first say that I'm sympathetic to people feeling like that. And, you know, for me, I have that reaction a little to global warming. It's it's bad, really, really bad. And, you know, every month there's something that makes it look worse. It's moving faster and more scarily. And, you know, I can barely read the global warming news every day. And for me, the reason is that I have not, there's nothing I can do about it. I don't really know much about it. I'm certainly no expert on global warming. So it's like, I feel completely powerless. You know, I feel differently in the world of the radical right because I've been working on it for 25, 28 years, something like that. So, I mean, what can people do? Well, let me first start by saying, you know, what I did was a very specific kind of style. I mean, I was perfectly happy to be, you know, in combat, right? So there's there's a part, you know, and I, I think it's great stuff and important, right? I mean, French resistance, whatever, right? I mean, uh, you know, some people have to fight. And, and so for me, that meant creating the intelligence report as an investigative magazine with the purpose of showing the hypocrisy of the movement, even with the purpose of sowing discord among the groups in the movement by truth telling, right, by pointing out what was going on behind the groups and so on, or by taking on more public figures, the Lou Dobbs of the world, you know, Hannity and, and so on. So I think there's something to be gained. Somebody's got to say the truth and say it straight. 
And, you know, when I did, you know, I did an awful lot of TV over 20 years. I mean, Prentice, which dealt with a lot of reporters, but, you know, I felt like for me, the key was to be cool, calm, collected, and have your facts at your fingertips. Don't get baited. Uh, and also, I'm with uh, Deborah Lipstuck in that I and others at the Southern Poverty Law Center decided many, many years ago that we're not going to get on a stage and do a debate with a Nazi. Was National Socialism good or bad, right? That kind of thing. Where right? did the Holocaust happen or didn't it happen? Because, you know, you in effect are giving air to those people. And at a certain point, you've got to say, I'm not going to debate perfectly obvious reality. Beyond that, for people who are not working at an anti-racist organization or in some way involved like that, you know, a big part of what's going on, it seems to me, is this incredible need for bridge building uh, in our communities. And what I mean is that, you know, there's been a fair amount of social science work to show that, you know, as communities get more diverse, trust falls. If they, if all my neighbors aren't white and Christian like me or white and Jewish like me or whatever it might be, I'm not too sure. You know, maybe they're the ones who are stealing my lawnmower, who, you know, uh, let their dog do his business on my lawn or whatever it is. So obviously we are in a world thanks to globalization. And I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing, but it's a thing. Whether you think of it as bad, good, bad, or ugly, uh, it's happening and nothing's going to stop it. So, you know, there is a lot of work to be done building bridges among these communities. And, you know, I think one of the most, you know, really remarkable things have been things like somebody burns down a Muslim center. And three days later in Houston, the local big synagogue invites the Muslim worshipers to come and worship in their space, right? I mean, now we're talking about something that matters. And, you know, that's particularly poignant given Israel and the friction between Jews and, and Muslims and so on. But, you know, that can happen in all kinds of very small ways. And, you know, that's, uh, uh, to me, is the single most important thing. Now, you know, you get to a question about, as an individual, how much are you going to confront people? Like the kids you talked about, they've got crazy anti-vaxxer parents, right? And parents who are willing to suck somebody in the face, some other parent of the same school, because they don't agree with them on vaccinations or have the temerity to point out that that's you know, not what science says or what's been shown clearly be the case. And that's a tough one, right? I mean, I don't uh, recommend that everybody go out there and, and step into dangerous situations. And yet, and yet you're in a bar and a black and white couple move, walk in and some, some nasty looking character starts to threaten them, call them names because you know they're race mixers or whatever. Well. If the people in the bar don't stand up and say something about that, those people are victims they're, and they, they aren't even bystanders. They're worse than bystanders. So I don't have a simple answer for you. I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be done at a lot of levels. And, you know, I will say that as a political matter, I mean, I consider myself a person of the left, basically. And I will say candidly that I think the left over the last 30 years or so has done a pretty piss poor job. Uh, of organizing to make the world a better place, in particular our country. And what I mean is, is that over the last 30 or 40 years, the right, the political right in this country has built a set of institutions, of foundations, of professorships, you know, of financing organizations, a whole world that supports the political right, but also supports the political radical right. Meanwhile, in this is my criticism, to very, a very large extent, the left was sort of sitting around arguing about bloody stupid things. 
for instance, I think of this as always my sort of fallback example, but there are many examples. You know, I remember when the Berkeley City Council, the Berkeley, California City Council, spent, you know, a couple of weeks arguing about the pressing question of whether to rename manholes in streets person holes because, you know, so obviously sexist. And you just feel like, well, maybe we ought to push that to the end of our agenda. And in the same way, you know, I personally could do without some of the campus speech codes and the safe spaces and all that stuff. I think it's ridiculous. Look, enough is enough. Why don't we, you know, the world is is in a very tough place right now. Maybe we could worry a little less about microaggressions uh, and a little more about the real aggressions, the macroaggressions. Yeah. You know, I go around watching different uh, news outlets and and I found that during the Trump presidency, I called CNN the network of the pregnant pause because there would be a clip and then it would go back to whoever was in studio and they'd be looking at the camera like, holy moly. Uh, what? <laughs> and there was a silence. And so I think people were just dealing with the shock of it and the what of it. But you're right that there hasn't been the, okay, and now we need to mobilize. We need to put efforts together where we really do zero in on what's important and let's be smart about it. Maybe it's not so smart to firebomb police stations in Portland, Oregon. Maybe that's counterproductive. Maybe the Antifa guys out there, you know, stabbing Klansmen in California, Klan demonstrations aren't really helping the world. And I'm not, you know, big critic of the Antifa world. Uh, I think the criticism is, is very much overstated. But look, there really is a small world out there of people who think the greatest thing you could do is punch some Nazi in the face. And, you know, look, I mean, when Richard Spencer got punched in the face, I can't tell you that I didn't kind of enjoy it. Um, You know, that little so-and-so had it coming. But, you know, if that's what making a better world is like, I'm here to tell you, it's not going to work. And and that's going down the path of Germany in the 30s. And I'm not suggesting we're the Weimar Republic, but, you know, that's what was happening in the 30s. Massive street wars between essentially communists and fascists. And well, in the end, the better guys, <laughs> the communists, the socialists, the democratic socialists lost. They were out beaten up. So I just, I don't think it's helpful. I think there's a lot of dumb thinking about strategies and tactics. And, you know, I guess it seems easier to punch a Nazi in the face than to go try and you know, improve your community or improve, kind of build bridges within your community, I think really is harder. Uh, but that's the work that needs to be done. Yes, agree. Agreed. I mean, it is uh, immediately gratifying, right? But it is very small and uh, it doesn't doesn't really help the cause in any grand way, although it gives you an immediate release. But that's also sort of just like being back in the sandbox, you know. So. Watching revenge films, right? right. I mean, exactly. you know, I mean, they're kind of fun, right? Who doesn't like to see the bad guys finally get their offense? But it's like, it's not a good way to help the world. Thank you for helping the world. Thank you for the work that you have continued to do in different forums, but with overlapping themes. And uh, I look forward to hopefully being able to speak with you again, but also watching, you know, what you provide and also how the information that you have called and what you've presented and what you've done has also now been put into play, which I'm sure is very gratifying for you to be able to see. 
And I thank you so much for your time today and really for, for your decades of work and continuing to educate the public and being the big idea guy, right? <laughs> Taking it off the streets and looking at it, sort of zooming out, seeing the big picture and seeing what needs to be done. And it's very much appreciated and very much necessary right now. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for all those probably overkind words, but I really appreciate it. And I would be happy to come back anytime. Wonderful. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you to Mark for continuing the conversation with me and for sharing his time and his wisdom and his experience. I'm so glad you got to hear part two of my two-part conversation with him. If you did not hear part one yet, please check for last week's episode. Mark is somebody who thinks in big ways, and I value that. He's also someone who cares about what's happening in the world now and also helping to set up a world and fortify a world that makes more sense and is safer for the next generations. There is a quote by Elizabeth McCracken, the author. And she says, when our children love what we love, it is a blessing. But oh, when they hate what we hate, and that's the quote, it's very powerful. Hate is something that goes from generation to generation unless it's stopped. Children are mirrors to us. They imitate us. God knows I know that from my kids. I've learned a lot about the things that I say, the little phrases, the sounds I make. When I hear them imitated, I'm just happy they're good because it's very easy to imitate the good and the bad. I have a friend whose father sometimes babysits her son. And she knows. Actually, even before she hears, oh, grandpa came over to spend some time with her son, she knows that he spent time with his grandfather because right after he does, when he gets up from the couch, he goes, oi, that lasts for about a day. Children imitate. So we want to guide well and carefully. Children also pick up not only on macro aggressions, but micro aggressions. Children pick up on the fact that you lock the car doors when you go into a certain neighborhood. Children notice the face that you make, your body language. They notice everything. And so because of that, I don't want you to be nervous around your kids. I want you to see that as a wonderful, wonderful tool to educate. And also, if you find that you have kind of a knee-jerk reaction to something that you weren't even aware and it sends a certain signal to your child, you have a chance to correct that and say, you know what, I feel like I made a face when someone approached me and 
you may have gotten the wrong impression that it's because they're from a certain place or they look a certain way, but it was really that I was nervous they were coming up and approaching me too quickly and that makes me anxious. Sort of translate the scene for your kids so they don't get the wrong idea. Not only do kids notice what we do, they pick up on things from each other, from their teachers, from their coaches, from everyone. So they're catching signals from everywhere. When you hear kids hating what you hate, hating certain people, hating certain relatives just because you had a bad time with them in 1970-whatever, and now they have to hate that person too, you want to understand how much your own issues can serve, unfortunately, as a lens you're putting on your child through which they see people, through which they see the world. It's also a poison that you're feeding to them in an attempt, I think, to have some support, in an attempt to pass along this information to future generations, you are potentially poisoning them. Give them a chance. Give them a chance to meet people on their own terms. Give them a chance to meet and whoever, who you happen to hate, because maybe in the last 40, 50 years, that aunt has changed a bit. Give your kids a chance. That is a gift. Hold back if you can. And if you notice, though, that you really do like passing on the hate to your kids, that it's going to be something that's going to feel like a runaway train. If you change your mind, if you change your feelings about things, you've already set something, sometimes in stone, for your children. And they may have already passed it on to their children. So be careful. If you have a chance, to impart information, have it be wisdom. And if you really can't help yourself and you really want to talk about people from another country being a certain way or you want to make sort of broad generalizations about whole swaths of people or whole generations of people or whole political parties, then say, in my opinion, but you can have a different opinion. Always give them a chance to be different without disappointing you. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow.com at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.